You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Dealing with those parts of migration policy that we have not been addressing well enough, showing that migration is manageable. This is not rocket science. This is not impossible. It's really doable. Welcome to EU Confidential, the number one European politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels, and you just heard Ilva Johansson, the EU's Home Affairs Commissioner, speaking to me earlier this week after unveiling the Commission's long-awaited and much-postponed plan to handle one of the most divisive issues on the continent, migration. You'll hear the Commissioner explain the plan in just a moment, and then we'll break it down and assess its chances of success with our podcast panel. And later in the show, you'll hear from another key player in European politics, France's Europe Minister Clément Beaune, on issues ranging from Turkey to why he says the EU needs a software upgrade. But first, let's hear from Ulva Johansson. Together with Commission Vice President Margarita Skinas, she presented the Commission's new proposals on migration on Wednesday. And later in the day, I spoke to her in her office and asked her to sum up the overall message from the plan. This is about managing migration, and I think it's important to understand what kind of situation Europe is in. Last year, we had 2.4 million people, migrants, coming here, having a residence uh, permit. And every year, around 1 million leave the European Union. So that means an extra 1, 1.5 million people come to the European Union. We need them, and it works quite well. But when it comes to the irregular arrivals, we are not managing that well enough. Of those coming irregularly, I think a lot of Europeans have still are, have this uh, 2015 <laughs> in their mind. Uh, and in 2015, we had almost 2 million people coming irregularly. Almost all of them were refugees. Now, we have much fewer coming irregular. Last year was 140,000. But of those arriving irregularly, a minority are refugees. A majority of those arriving will not have got asylum. They will have a return decision. And I think this is also important that we need to be much better to return people to the country of origin. I think that the European citizens want from us that we can make the clear distinction between those that are eligible to stay and they should be welcome and be part of society. And those that are not eligible to stay, they have to return. Because otherwise, I don't think that we will have the public support, actually, for this. So on returns, we are not performing well enough. Right. But that's been a, a long-term problem. I mean, people have been saying for years, this is the problem. You reach a decision, but you can't enforce it. And partly this is to do with 
you know, legal channels, appeals of people disappearing, you know, when you need to actually carry out the return. You know, what are you proposing today that would actually change these problems that have been around for a long time? I'm closing these loopholes. I'm closing the loopholes that you can just abscond and then have another chance. This will not be possible anymore. I close all these loopholes. Can you say that across Europe, though? Because a lot of this is down to national yes. legislation, yes, national but it's also I'm, put, I'm putting also now a European proposal on this. Also for the appeals, for example. Some people just appeal when they are entering the plane or things like mm. that. So we are dealing with all these things. But a lot of these things are ground in, you know, kind of constitutions in some countries. They're not so easy to change, right, these rights? Well, of course, still, the, every, every member state has to be, I mean, it's also according to national legislation, as you said. But I can be only responsible for the European ones, and that's what I'm proposing here. So I will help member states to deal with this. But we also, uh, it's very clear now that we are, are starting to work much closer with third countries, both countries of origin and countries of transit, and that we put in all the different tools, so to say, or, uh, that we have in the European Commission. So we're going to work close together with better partnership with third countries. Well, what's the kind and of carrot and stitch approach there, if you don't mind me interrupting? Like, how do you persuade those countries to, to do I that? I think, uh, in one way, you can say you need both carrot and stick. But on the other hand, I said, we need to find partnerships with win-win situations. And this is not really good for the countries of origin either. So we need to help each other to find a good, a good partnership because we're going to be partners for a long time. But... Uh, we have a new instrument, and that is the new visa uh, regulation that came into force in February. And that makes it possible for the European Commission that we should present reports on how good each country are when it comes to cooperating on readmission and returns. And we are now preparing these uh, reports. And if a country is cooperating very good, there could be positive result when it comes to the visa facilitation. So they could get more visas, could be allocated. Yeah, or easier, or right. m- or more openness, or on the other way around as well. And this is a new tool that already exists but has never been used. So I'm I'm also looking forward to start using this new mechanism. Now, one of the eye-catching parts of the proposal is that the idea of mandatory relocation, which was you know the subject of so much controversy the last time has gone. You're not going to insist on that anymore. Does that mean that the Visegrad 4, Viktor Orban and his allies from the other three uh, Central and Eastern European countries, that they have basically won that argument? No. That means that the reality has changed. In 2015, we had 2 million more or less coming, and more, almost all of them were refugees. So relocation was in the center of all the discussions. Today, we have fewer irregular arrivals, and the majority of those need to be returned. And we are not so good at returning people. So that's why I think it's an important part of solidarity. If a member state have too many migrants... A lot of them need to be returned. And that's where other member states can help through this what we call return sponsorship. And also the border procedures that we are proposing fits into these return efforts. If you have quick processes at the borders where you have a quick decision on returns, I think it's much, much easier also to for voluntary returns back to the country of origin. But how quickly can you realistically do that? If, I, if, if someone turns up and says, I'm from an, an, a village in Afghanistan, I am being persecuted, I'm asking for protection, 
you know, there's a lot that you would need to investigate to make a, a proper decision on whether that person deserves it. It's not something that can be done quickly at the border, is it? Well, we propose that it should be done in 12 weeks. If it's not possible to have the process in 12 weeks, then this uh, person has to go through the normal procedure where it can take longer time. But I should say that my experience is that when it takes long long time for to process asylum application, it's not because it takes so many months to actually deal with it. It's because there are a lot of backlogs. So there are not enough people <laughs> so, dealing with it? Yes. Is that it? So it's also about... You don't ca- think it's a lack of information? I mean, some of that stuff's quite hard to find out, right, well, for but, an so, but sometimes it's not easier if you continue for years, you know, mm. on this. So, uh, I mean, there could be, of course, a few cases that are very, very difficult, takes longer time. But the biggest reason why we have long procedures is because they are not working on the case all the time and, and as quick as possible. Okay. Go into a bit more detail about this sponsorship idea. You know, how is it that, for example, the government of Slovakia would be better at returning people from Italy to a home country than the Italian authorities? I mean, surely, you know, the Italians are best placed to do that. Yes, they probably are. But maybe for another country like Malta. A small one. There are a lot of migrants in Malta, and a majority of those are not refugees. And I think that's a, a better example of where this kind of return sponsorship could really make a difference. And I will appoint a special return coordinator. I will set up a network of national experts on returns. We also have Frontex that could help with the returns, so we can also help with this. But when the member state is overwhelmed a bit with migrants, it's important to have the help both with relocation and returns. And I think it's important that we do not relocate those that do not have the right to stay. It's also important that those that are not eligible to stay have to be returned. And that's why they should not be relocated. But isn't the the biggest challenge of all and the one that, that, that you can't solve and aren't really attempting to solve here is this inherent contradiction. You know, there's a border-free zone, there's an EU external border, but within that there are different countries, all with their own approaches, laws, rules around asylum, around migration. And as long as those are different, it's very hard to have an EU policy. Yes, but what we're proposing now is to make it more European, uh, and especially member states. They're all asking for a more coherent uh, European approach and closing the loopholes and make rebuilding trust again. And I think this is also important if we would like to come back, and I think that's necessary to come back to a fully functioning Schengen area. It's important that you can also trust what's happening at the external border, what kind of processes, who is responsible for who, uh, for, for what. Is that This is really important. Without that, we are lacking trust. Um, you're from the political left. You're a social democrat. You know what would you say is socialist, uh, social democrat about this policy? Oh, very much. Uh, it's about managing migration. I think all this dramatizing of migration—it's really dangerous. Making migration. And you think that's what the right does? Is that what you're? I, I hear some of these extreme right voices. Yes, dramatizing migration, making migration as a crisis. And that's why I started. Migration is normal. Migration has always been there. Migration will always be there. Our task is to manage migration. And actually, most of the migrants coming to the European Union, we are managing well. 
So we should not dramatize that. And I think dealing with those parts of migration policy that we have not been addressing well enough, this is really social democratic, showing that migration is manageable. This is not rocket science. This is not impossible. It's really doable. But why has it been so difficult for so long then? Well, I should not answer for the for the previous commission, but I think one problem was, was the crisis mood from 2015. Uh, I think that that's not... But that uh, was a crisis, in your, including in your home country. Yes, yes, yes of course it was, and it, it was necessary to, to, to deal with. But I think to be able to find the compromise that can be accepted by all and that can rebuild this trust and to manage migration, it's important to look at the real challenges and not putting uh, fictive ones or making challenges bigger than they are. Of course, there are big challenges, but they are actually absolutely possible to deal with. And as politicians, I think it's really important that we can show, yes, we can do it. What can you do, you know, to avoid scenes like Moria, even before the fire? There was a camp taking many more people than it was designed for. The conditions were just widely condemned as appalling. What comes from this package that's going to help migrants, particularly those who have a right to protection, that they're not treated in those in that way in the future? Well, we have this proposal on how we should have proper facilities for migrants so that they should not stay in places like the conditions were in Moria. But it's important to say that we cannot wait with a new package to solve the problems that we have on the Greek islands. And that's why I started the first day I took office to really start decongesting these islands. But we, and now we are putting out a task force for a pilot to have a better coordination between European Commission and the Greek authorities and international organizations and agencies, how we should deal with this. And next week, 3,000 more people will leave Lesbos and we need to find a proper facility for these people and to build a good reception center that can have proper living conditions, school for children and all that. And you think the Greek government's on board for that? Yes, I know they are. Including not keeping so many people on the islands? Like, are they willing to let more of those people onto the mainland? That is necessary. Are they willing to do it? This is what this is necessary. We have to do it. Okay. Finally, anything else that you want to mention? Yes. I talked about the risk of dramatising migration. I think there's also another risk I would like to address, and that's putting, uh, like there is... Uh, a contradiction uh, between protecting your borders and stand up for human rights, the Geneva Convention, our treaty, the right to apply for asylum and to treat people properly. It's not. Yes, we have border management, we have the screening process, we have the border procedures, but we're also proposing a new independent monitoring mechanism in all member states to make sure there are no pushbacks. So... Not everybody can stay in the European Union, but everybody had the right to a proper process, to apply for asylum, have a proper process, but if you have a no, you have to leave. Understood. Commissioner, thank you very much. Thank you. So, we heard the Commissioner's take there on the EU Migration Pact. Let's bring in our podcast panel now to discuss it. Matt's in Berlin. Hi, Matt. Hello. And uh, joining us this week are in-house migration expert, senior EU reporter Jacopo Baragazzi. Hi, Jacopo. Hi. 
So, Jacobo, let's start with you. As I say, you've been following this uh, debate for years. You know, what stood out uh, for you in the new proposal? What's really new here? What seems uh, really new is that the Commission doesn't play anymore the moral arbiter between what uh, are the requests of Hungary and what are the requests uh, of uh, the frontline states like Italy. Meaning, uh, frontline states have always been asking for uh, a system, a mandatory system to redistribute asylum seekers across uh, Europe. While uh, Hungary has always, uh, countries like Hungary is not the only one, has always rejected this kind of uh, But uh, the Commission this time plays it completely different, and uh, it decided that uh, the two kinds of requests are at the same level. And uh, in this way, both fronts won't be happy, but this could also be a reason for compromise. Right. In a sense, what they're saying is that solidarity can take different forms and they're not going to insist on one particular type of solidarity. In other words, taking in refugees or asylum seekers, uh, there could be other ways to do that. And, you know, as you say, Jacopo, that's not what particularly the kind of coastal states, Italy, Greece and others were hoping for. But they have been given something, if you like. What do you make of it, Matt? And how is it being kind of interpreted and viewed in Berlin? So I'd point to a couple of things. First of all, I think it's worth remembering that this idea in its broad contours has been floating around for quite some time. It was also put forth by the Juncker Commission before uh, Ursula von der Leyen came to Brussels. So it's not per se a new idea, although some of the details are new and many of the details obviously still have to be worked out. And I think that is what has given a lot of people in Berlin pause. There's been more attention than I would have expected here to this plan. And what I've heard so far is that people think that Germany is once again going to be left holding the bag for the refugee crisis and that other countries are going to get off by, you know, making some kind of token contribution. And what that contribution will look like is also something that people are wondering. I mean, is it going to mean that Polish and Hungarian border guards, for example, are going to be the ones carrying out the returns of refugees, which is something that I think a lot of people in Germany, especially on the left, would not like to see. And it's not yet clear what those details will look like, but I think that the political class in Germany definitely wants to know more before they come to a final judgment. That said, I think on the conservative side of the spectrum, there are people who welcome this. I spoke to the premier of North Rhine-Westphalia last week, Armin Laschet, and he told me well before this plan was published what he thought of it. He clearly had been briefed on it and, you know, underscored that the idea of solidarity didn't necessarily mean that everybody had to take in refugees. So this is certainly a sign that this is an issue that, that Germans are very focused on. Who would have imagined that the uh, there might be some kind of back channel between these uh, Christian Democratic German politicians? This will <laughs> this will uh, this will probably not come as a huge surprise to all people in uh, Brussels. But Jakob, what do you, do you think? This there's some deliberate ambiguity here from the Commission because you know you can interpret this as the end of the Dublin system. That means you know. Um, 
refugees, asylum seekers are are dealt with in the country in which they arrive. Uh, I've heard people saying, oh yeah, now solidarity is going to be mandatory under this system and other people saying, no, it's not. Do you think that was actually part of the design here to make it kind of look different to different sides? Yes, I think so. Also because uh, if you see, for example, uh, the reaction in Italy on uh, Dublin, uh, nothing has changed. As uh, uh, if you speak, That's how Italy sees it? Yes, uh, the principle of the current first arrival uh, is still there. But it's true at the same time, uh, they have uh, modified one of the criteria and they have added another one. And so from this point of view, it's true that there is lots of ambiguity in what really will change. But this will depend mainly at this point on uh, the politics behind it. But at the same time, the application of this issue will depend on how much relocation of asylum seekers will be applied. Because, of course, if you say the real death of Dublin, it happens only if, for real, the other criteria are applied and, for real, asylum seekers are relocated and redistributed across the rest of the EU, depending on the other criteria. Right. And those criteria, which you spell out in an excellent piece that's up on our site uh, with uh, five takeaways from the proposal, uh, those criteria are things that authorities are meant to take into account ahead of the question of where you arrived. So that could be family ties. So if you arrive as someone seeking asylum in Greece, for example, but already have family in another EU country, perhaps that country would process your application. If there's a child involved, the welfare of the child is considered. Right. So there's a bunch of these other criteria and they've kind of changed the order. Order, but of course, a lot of the time, those criteria won't apply and you'll end up back with the, the state in which they arrived having to deal with it. And uh, some of the diplomats this morning were saying they didn't even change the order because, of course, yesterday there was <laughs> such an amount of legislative acts to digest uh, that uh, we are still studying what has really changed right? and what was uh, basically a big announcement, but uh, underneath uh, we still have to understand it. This is the thing, and I, I do wonder if this was a deliberate act of, you know, killing us with kindness, if you like. You know, they dumped, I think, 10 different uh, measures, uh, you know, some of them legislative proposals, some of them other proposals as some big package. And as you say, that means, of course, they can present them and it takes everybody else, including diplomats, and officials and governments a while to work through all the detail and, and figure out, you know, just exactly what's being proposed here. But Matt, how big a deal is this issue in Germany now? It's obviously very potent politically. You know, the AFD rose really on the back of the migration crisis of 2015. So it was obviously absolutely front and centre for Germany. How is it now, you know, in the how big an issue is it in the current political context? Well, I would say that it remains a big issue. This is a political issue that you know has defined the last term of Angela Merkel's government. And I think it is something that German politicians have realized they're going to be dealing with for quite some time. The AFD itself is not doing particularly well in the polls right now. It is down at about 10%, well below the, the 15% where it was polling at the height of the crisis. But you know, I think everybody knows that if things don't go well in terms of Europe's ability to manage migration, that that is going to be more wind in the sails of the AFD and of other populist forces in Germany. So this is something that, again, the political establishment in Germany, I think, is very cognizant of, which is why they're trying so hard to find some kind of European solution here, even if 
they don't get everything they want from it. Interesting. Jacopo, where does this go next? You know, what's the next step? They put the proposal out there. Uh, from the Commission's point of view, what are they hoping happens next? They hope that uh, it will stay on the table, that uh, it will be not uh, rejected immediately. And at the same time, there is a dynamic uh, that they hope will help, which is the lack of a crisis, as also uh, Matt was mentioning. But, you know, that's, that's strange because on the recovery fund, it was exactly the fact that there was a strong crisis that uh, pushed the countries that were reluctant to change their line. Mm. Here, the bet is on the opposite, that the lack of a crisis will push the reluctant countries to accept the deal. Then at the same time, this also says something. And the next step will be, of course, uh, now there is a meeting uh, with the V4, with the countries, so the Visegrad countries, so Hungary, Poland, the Czech Republic, uh, and Slovakia. But uh, the real first official step is at the beginning of October when uh, the interior ministers uh, will meet. But this also tells something about the way the EU decides. Meaning last time the big crisis with Hungary was triggered by a decision with qualified majority voting in September 2015. And now clearly with this kind of approach that the commission yesterday set out, it's pretty clear that nobody wants to use QNV anymore on things like migration. The QNV is the qualified majority voting that I was referring to. So it's pretty clear that they want unanimity. Mm. They want unanimity on something where it's possible not to decide with unanimity, but with majority voting. But last time when this was tried, it was a total disaster. Right. And any idea of a timeline, Jacopo, as to when, you know, they would, they might reach, well, first of all, a kind of tentative kind of overarching agreement and then actually, you know, implement all these measures? German Interior Minister Seehofer said in July that he wants to have a political agreement on the major points by the end of the German presidency, which means by December. Mm. Then we will have the Portuguese presidency, the small country. Then we'll have Slovenia, another small country that in this moment has a government that is closer to the Hungarian positions rather than to the German positions. And then we will have France, another big country. But uh, officials and diplomats often stress that for France, migration is more a security issue rather than anything else. So they may have a different perspective again. But I guess the expectation among some anyway is that you might need the French presidency, the weight of a big country in the kind of presidency chair to kind of finish things off and and get the final compromises. Okay. well, Matt, Jacopo, that's great. Thanks very much. Talk to you again soon. Thank you. Thank you. Now, just before our next interview, a big thanks to all of you who have sent feedback, like ideas for topics for future episodes, to our email address, podcast at politico.eu. We know from our listening figures that there are many of you out there, but it's always nice to get to know some of the names behind the numbers. We're taking all your ideas on board and we'll work our way through as many of them as possible in the weeks and months ahead. And if you haven't dropped us a line yet, please feel free to do so anytime. The address again is podcast at politico.eu. Now, regular listeners will have noticed you didn't hear from Reem, our Paris correspondent, in our panel discussion as she's on other duties this week. But you will hear her now as she and our colleague Maya de la Baume interviewed France's Europe Minister Clément Beaune in our Brussels newsroom earlier this week. Beaune is new in the job, but far from new to the EU beat. He was previously Emmanuel Macron's key advisor on Europe. You can see the whole interview online at politico.eu 
We'll post the exact link in the show notes. But now let's hear some highlights from that conversation, which gave a really interesting insight into how Emmanuel Macron and the French government are thinking about Europe these days. We start with Reem asking Bone about relations with Turkey and what France expected from Ankara to reduce tensions in the eastern Mediterranean. You said that there was a need for Turkey to show some sort of goodwill, take some sort of action, some steps, additional steps. Can you tell us a bit more in detail, what kind of gesture were you looking for from Turkey? Well, first, you said there are some differences or divergences between member states. Well, it's true on all big foreign issues, and it's, I mean, it's not a big surprise in a club of 27 with different histories, different sensitivities, different geographies. I think on this one, we can also see the convergence which has taken place because between France and Germany, there were differences originally. I think now the gap has narrowed. Mm -hmm. But I think we've worked quite well on it in this case because now it's not true to say that there is uh, some member states, France and Germany, but others being very, very soft on Turkey. It's not the case anymore. And other member states, say France, being so tough that they want to escalate and so on, which is not true. So, of course, we have to adjust. We still have some work to do. But I think we are on the right track, to be honest. And as for France, I think the president, President Macron, was right to uh, say we have to increase the pressure and to be a bit tougher because, sorry, it's not a crisis for one week or for two weeks. It's uh, the way we approach Turkey. Uh, it's the way Turkey develops a strategy, which I think is a long-term plan of influence towards Europe, of creating, to be frank, some dependency of Europe, the EU, towards Turkey. Uh, but So we have a tension now. Mm. We have to solve it. I think we know we need firmness to do so. But we will have to live with a difficult situation, I think, with some hot moments and some more cooler moments in this region. As for what we expect soon from Turkey, they have displayed some appeasement gestures uh, towards Greece mm -hmm. in the last days. I'm very cautious because it can move by the hour. Uh, this afternoon we had communication from Turkey to say they were ready to open discussions with Greece. Let's take it as a positive development, but we'll see. But and Cyprus seems to be the exactly. sticking point. Exactly, and I was in Cyprus last week also to demonstrate France's support, not only towards Greece, but towards Cyprus, because if the EU is a political club, is a power and means it, and we still have a lot, a long way to go, but I think we're on this track, and France is very much focused on this, we cannot say whatever member state is concerned, okay, there's only one member state, only two member states, we do not care, it's far from us. It's not. If we are serious about being a political power, a political project, then we have to care about each member state's sovereignty. So it's not sufficient to have some signal which are positive regarding Greece. We also need it towards Cyprus as well. You said that all options would be on the table. And, you know, France speaks the language of power. It doesn't have a problem speaking the language of power. But France seems to be having a problem being explicit in its language of power, meaning explicit in what it's asking Turkey to do, in what it's threatening Turkey with at the end of the day. So I'm, I'm going to ask again, explicitly, what does that mean? You know, what are you expecting of them? And also, what could happen? What is the stick that is awaiting them? Well, I don't think we were uh, so implicit or so shy. We sent some boats and some planes, military 
uh, elements in the Mediterranean Sea, not to create a conflict, of course, not to create escalation, but to demonstrate that we were serious and we were present uh, in the Mediterranean Sea. I think it's very concrete. I don't want, usually not my style, to be uh, too shy about uh, Europe's sovereignty or Europe's power, but I'm not irresponsible. I don't have the final answer to this. Mm. We don't know exactly how far we need to go, but we've demonstrated that when it's needed, we are the ones pushing for a strong answer. That said, I don't want to... Uh, there is this European thing, if I can go a bit further, which is, uh, okay, we've been too soft traditionally. Uh, now we need to be a bit more firm, so it's sanctions. And the only tool we come up with is sanctions. But uh, it should not be the only tough tool, if I may say. Military, so what other tools? Military exercise yeah. has been an option when it was necessary to be there. Uh, it can happen again. And we can adapt uh, in words, in uh, diplomatic action like sanctions, in, in military presence. We can adapt our response. But I usually insist on, because I really believe it, Europe has not been built as an outward-looking project. It's true. And it's been a huge achievement in terms of being inward-looking. It has created peace or consolidated peace. It has reconciled member states. Now we go to European Council. Sometimes it's boring, sometimes it's long or frustrating, but it's better than doing war, frankly. And we always have to keep this in mind. But now, what we have to invent that we never invented, so probably uh, an evidence that it's not so easy, we never had at the European level, at the same time, cooperation, internal cooperation on external power, never. Mm-hmm. Not a huge, uh, not the best historian you can have on stage, but uh, just look at the last 200 years, it's already a while. Uh, we had power, we directed power against each other in Europe. We know how it ended with and we invented, which was a huge and crazy uh, positive invention, the European project. It helped creating cooperation between us. But we were so bad at dealing with powers that we just delegated it, if I may put it like that. We delegated it to NATO, to the US, to national states, of course, armies and so on. EU was not about this. So EU is learning that, hello, there are some powers on the doorstep, Russia, Turkey, just to mention two of them, the main ones, and they are not so nice. Mm. <laughs> so we have to unite and we have to develop tools, and we don't have them, if you ask me the question, yeah. at this stage. Yeah. France will have its uh, EU presidency in 2022. Glad you mentioned it. What would be the three main achievements that, you would, that France would want to see concluded maybe during the presidency? And three, stick to three. <laughs> I'll just have some... some I, I hope we have... A migration package, which is, yeah. I hope, before, actually, but if not, we will, I hope, finish it. Very important to have some other tools on rule of law. And final thing, which is precisely forward-looking, the uh, Conference of the Future of Europe. I uh, hope it will be launched soon and concluded during the French presidency. Launched in November? I hope so. I hope so. I say this is a goal. And Who is the president? Don't know. That's why it's not now. It's a few, in a few weeks because we still have to solve this issue. But uh, by the French presidency, we will have a president and an efficient results, I hope. But seriously, I think the big issue is to change the European software. It's not only a list of measures and actions. It matters. But how we think our relation to China, to the US, are we confident enough? Can we be firm enough when there is a threat? as the one we are seeing now. This conference on the future of Europe is a way to have the list of policies, measures, I hope in an open manner, with citizen panels and so on, to define our roadmap 
for the next five to ten years, and I hope that would be a big honor that we can conclude this and have this roadmap on the table first semester 2022 in Strasbourg. That was Clément Bon talking to Politico's Rim Montaz and Maya de la Baume. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And please take a moment right now if you can to rate us by clicking some stars or even leaving a review. That helps other people find the show. Ryan Heath will be here on Tuesday with the latest episode in our pop-up series on the US elections. If you haven't listened to that yet, do give it a try. The series is built around themes rather than the news of the week, so you can listen back anytime. The most recent episode on conspiracy theories is a real jaw-dropper. We'll be back again as usual with EU Confidential next Thursday. Until then, I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to our producer, Christina Gonzalez, and thanks to you for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.